Joseph Heller floated various stories about the origins of his first novel. In one of them, he said, There was a terrible sameness about books being published, and I almost stopped reading as well as writing. But then, something happened. A conversation with two of his friends had a resounding influence on him. Each of these friends had been wounded in the war, and one of them very seriously. The first one told some very funny stories about his war experiences, but the second one was unable to understand just how any humor could be associated with the horror of war. These two friends did not know one another, leading Heller to try to explain the first one's point of view to the second. He recognized that traditionally there had been lots of graveyard humor, but he could not reconcile it with what he had seen of war. It was after that discussion that the opening of Catch-22 and many incidents in it bloomed in his mind. Now, the most common account Heller has given concerning the hatching of Catch-22 comes from the Paris Review, 1974. There he said, I was lying in bed in my four-room apartment on the west side when suddenly this line came to me. It was love at first sight. The first time he saw the chaplain, someone fell madly in love with him. As soon as the opening sentence made its entrance, the book began to evolve in his mind. Even most of the particulars, the tone, the form, many of the characters, including some he eventually couldn't use. All of this took place within an hour and a half. He got so excited that he did what the old cliche says you're supposed to do. He jumped out of bed and paced the floor with his mind matching each step. The next morning, upon arriving at work, he immediately put down the first chapter of what he intended to be a novel. The handwritten manuscript totaled about 20 pages. He titled it Catch 18. The year was 1953. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, wars, and humor. I'm your host, Jason Nemoore Hardin, and on this episode, we explore Joseph Heller's debut novel, Catch-22. Here's a quote about the book from Harper Lee. Catch-22 is the only war novel I've ever read that makes any sense. End quote. Agents were not impressed with Catch-18. In fact, most found the writing to be incomprehensible. He would, however, find one person, a young assistant who secured the permissions to submit what was referred to as a chapter from a novel in progress. Catch 18 was published in the anthology series, New World Writing, and made a few bucks even. He couldn't quit his day job in advertising just yet, but it was a start. Joe would go back to his kitchen table and most evenings he'd write one to three pages in longhand on yellow legal pads. He'd compose the same scene many times over, using the same opening and closing sentences until some of the scenes swelled from three to over one hundred pages. He was very fond of filling in. 
In this laborious way, stories grew about the shrewd young soldier, Yossarian, determined to live forever or die trying. It took a while, actually more than a while, five years to be precise, but by February 1958, he had completed seven handwritten chapters of Catch-18 and typed them up into a 259-page manuscript. These chapters wound up at Simon and & Schuster, and despite not winning over everyone at the publishing house, he did win over editor Robert Gottlieb and got the standard first book agreement, $1,500. Now, 750 of those dollars would be paid as an advance, while the additional 750 would be paid upon completion of the manuscript. The contract listed 1960 as the publication date. But little did Gottlieb know just how slow of a writer Joseph Heller truly was. Now fast forward to 1974, Heller would tell in an interview, I think I was Gottlieb's first writer, not his first published writer. However, because I worked so slowly, it came so hard. I really thought it would be the only thing I ever wrote. Working on Catch, I'd become furious and despondent that I could only write a page or so a night. I'd say to myself, Christ, I'm a mature adult with a master's degree in English. Why can't I work faster? The various stages of the novel, now housed in the Archives and Special Collections Department of Brandeis University Libraries, reveal that at one point he was working with at least nine different drafts, both handwritten and typed, often cutting and pasting sections from one draft into another, leaving blank spaces in some of the handwritten drafts for typed paragraphs to be inserted later. <laughs> Sounds like modern word processing software would have definitely came in handy for old Joe. <laughs> well, anyway, a typed section was no closer to being finished in his mind than a handwritten one. Some of the typed paragraphs had been revised as many as three different times in red ink, green ink, and pencil. Generally, the handwritten passages relish the intentional redundancy of expressions and images, which revisions tended to erase, largely by replacing proper nouns with pronouns. From draft to draft, most of the major changes were structural. He shuffled chapters, finding more effective ways to introduce the large cast of characters. I'm a chronic fiddler, he said. Now, the way he saw it, if left on his own... He'd never finish anything at all. His agent managed to sell the British publishing rights to Frederick Warburg of Secker and Warburg, who felt Joe was possessed of true literary genius. This news gave Joe a much-needed boost. Catch 18 would double in length by the time Gottlieb would see it again. The original manuscript expanded from 7 to 16 chapters, plus a whole new section consisting of 28 more chapters. The pages were a mix of typescript and legal-sized notebook paper covered in his precise and rather crabbed handwriting. He was taking so long to write the book that the literary world in which he conceived the novel no longer existed. Most importantly, by the end of the 1950s, World War II and the cultural ferment immediately preceding and following it could no longer be straightforwardly approached in fiction, at least not effectively. No one had, to this point, 
nor could they top the novels The Naked and the Dead or From Here to Eternity. There was no need to repeat those novels' achievements, the vivid battlefield scenes, and dissections of military hierarchies. Yet, night after night, at his kitchen table, Joseph Heller continued to write a novel about the war. He prepared a 758-page typescript from this jigsaw puzzle of a novel, deleting digressive episodes and expanding other chapters. He and Gottlieb would then plunge in again. Gottlieb inspected paragraphs for what he called impoverished vocabulary and asked Joe to stir things up with a bit more active language. He caught places where Joe seemed to be clearing his throat, dawdling in Joe's characteristic way and not getting directly to the point. Later, Joe would recall, some of Bob's suggestions involved a lot of work. There was a chapter that came on page 200 or 300 of the manuscript. I believe it was the one with Colonel Cathcart. It was either that or the major, major chapter. And he said he liked this chapter and it was a shame we didn't get to it earlier. I agreed with him and I cut about 50 or 60 pages from the opening just to get there more quickly. Eventually, the 1960 deadline had passed. Joe dropped 150 pages from the manuscript, and the remaining typescript was heavily line-edited, and this became the printer's copy. Gottlieb would later say, We worked like dogs on catch, and then just before it went to press, I was reading it again, and I came to a chapter I'd always hated. I thought it was pretentious and literary. I said, Joe, you know... I've always hated this chapter, and he said, well, take it out, and out it went. Joe would print it many years later in Esquire as the lost chapter of Catch-22. <music> Meanwhile, Joe felt lucky and glad to be working with cover designer Paul Bacon. Bacon was a native of Austin, New York, a war veteran, and the same age as Joe. Bacon downplayed the cover's imagery, depicting two small jittery figures printed in red. He devoted most of the space to the title and the author's name. The book became a bestseller. The design in particular caught the eye of other publishers. It was then that it became the birth of the big book look. The new publication date was set for October 1961, just in time for the Christmas marketing season. The stress of writing the novel, as well as consuming all that expense account food and booze while working for Time and McCall's, Heller said, put 50 pounds on his once thin frame. Some of his colleagues took to calling him the locust. Whatever was there, I'd eat, he said. He even still, up to that point, bit his nails. Then, one day, he got a call from Gottlieb who said the title, Catch-18, would have to go. Leon Uris was preparing to release a novel called Mila-18, all about the Nazi occupation of Poland. Uris's title was taken from the designation for the headquarters of a Jewish resistance fighter's bunker in Warsaw. Leon Uris was a well-known writer, so the reasoning was that two novels with the number 18 and the title would clash in the marketplace, and Joe, being the unknown at the time, 
was bound to get the short end of the deal. The number in the title had always been arbitrary, basically a part of the joke about military rules. Still, Heller, Gottlieb, and publishing executive Nina Bourne had long thought of the book as Catch-18, and it was difficult to conceive of calling it anything else. Sitting opposite one another in his office in a state of despair, Gottlieb and Heller were spitting out numbers, trying to find which one would stick. Joe liked the sound of catch eleven, hard consonants followed by vowels. Gottlieb thought there were too many syllables in that. And besides that, it was a bit too close to the new Frank Sinatra movie, Ocean's Eleven. Well, the two decided to sleep on it and come back to the matter another day. Then, on January 29, 1961, Heller sent Gottlieb a note bringing to bear all his advertising persuasion. The name of the book is now Catch-14. He followed it with saying, 48 hours after you resign yourself to the change, you'll find yourself almost preferring this new number. It has the same bland and nondescript significance of the original. It is far enough away from Eurus for the book to establish an identity of its own, I believe, yet close enough to the original title to still benefit from the word-of-mouth publicity we have been giving it. Gottlieb still wasn't sold. The name would be solidified soon enough, however. Gottlieb would later say about it, I remember it totally, because it was in the middle of the night. I remember Joe came up with some number and I said, no, it's not funny, which is ridiculous because no number is intrinsically funny. And then I was lying in bed worrying about it one night, and I suddenly had this revelation. And I called them the next morning and said, I've got the perfect number, 22. It's funnier than 18. I remember those words being spoken. He said, yes, it's great. It's great. Heller's suggestion that the bombers be called B-22s may have put the number in Gottlieb's mind. In any case, the number fit the story because of the novel's doubling structure, the constant linguistic repetitions, the instances of déjà vu, the repeated actions, the endless missions, and the concept of an inescapable loop. Finally, the revisions were done. The legal worries had been resolved. The fall book season had arrived. Catch-22 was about to be launched. Now in common usage, the term Catch-22 is known to mean an insoluble paradox, usually bureaucratic or legalistic in nature, which has its roots in yes and no, and the recognition that there is often no difference between them. One is meaningless without the other, just as they exist in opposition tonight. Publishing executive Nina Bourne had worked hard on Catch-22. Consequently, she saw herself as the demented governess who believed the baby was her own. Her conviction that the novel was a work of literary genius led her to stand up in the book's first promotion meeting. With a tremor in her voice and tears in her eyes, she announced, We have to print 7,500 instead of the standard 5,000 copy first printing. If the book I feel this strongly about can't have 7,500 copies, what am I doing here? She said. No one argued. 
Bourne was typically not one to make a scene or issue demands. She said what she meant, and if she was willing to take a risk on this book, then the company would fall in behind her. By Thanksgiving 1961, nearly 12,000 copies had been sold. Respectable, but not over the top. That fall, the bestsellers included Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird in its 18th printing just one year after its release, J.D. Selinger's Franny and Zooey, John Steinbeck's The Winter of Our Discontent, Irving Stone's The Agony and the Ecstasy, Harold Robbins' The Carpetbaggers, and, predictably, Leon Uris's Mila 18. Then, by April 1962, 19,000 copies had been sold, which led to a fifth printing cycle. Robert Gottlieb and Nina Bourne were not bound by conventional marketing standards, so they felt more could and should be done in order to ensure that the book would be read by as many people as possible. With this in mind, Bourne sent special order cards to bookstores all over the country, guaranteeing payment of transportation costs on any order for Catch-22 placed on one of the cards. Furthermore, Simon & Schuster would pay return costs on any unsold special order copies. The bookstores went for it. What also helped the book tremendously was a certain review in the Chicago Daily News which read, Catch-22 is a classic because it employs fantasy to depict truth too devastating to tell by factual narration. A classic because its burlesque of army brass is rooted soundly in the thinking of the businessman in uniform and is told by a writer whose experience of business at war is firsthand. The article spurred interest in the novel throughout Midwest America and by the end of June 1962... Catch-22 had sold 25,000 copies. By April 1963, the paperback had sold 1.1 million copies of the 1.25 million in print. Hardback sales averaged 100 to 200 copies a month. In sales as well as critical acclaim, Catch-22 had broken out of its literary trappings and East Coast box to become a perennial American classic. And as they say, the rest is history. A history that we here at House of Words just might delve into at a later date. Stay tuned. But for now, and as always, let me leave you with a quote from the tightrope walker himself, and this one is meant to inspire. Every writer I know has trouble writing. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoore Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages.
House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Lemore Harden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Lemore Harden. <laughs>